Well, welcome back, everybody. Shh. Well, welcome back to week three of the Alpha course. Uh, it is, it's wonderful to have you all back. Anybody, how many of y'all here for the first time this week? Any first timers? Okay, well, thank you for being here. It's great to have you here. Thank you. And uh, third time, third time, all three, you're three for three. You got perfect attendance going. Okay. You know, com- commencement, graduation happens in just seven more weeks. And if you have perfect attendance, we really make a big deal out of that for you. So, so keep it, keep him coming. Well, um, for those of you guys who were not here last week, uh, I, my name is Frank Loria. Uh, as I mentioned, not on staff here at Lakeview Christian Center. I own a business and just across the way on the other side of the canal. And I've had the privilege of uh, doing the presentation duties with uh, our pastor, Keith Collins, for... 17 years now, and this is our 32nd Alpha, as I mentioned to you last week. Um, Last week, for those of you who weren't here, or those of you who were here but really weren't here, um, we talked about the historical Jesus, that Jesus is not just a figure to be found in the Bible, but there's there's not a historian who has any respect at all that does not believe that Jesus was a historical figure. And, uh, and so we talked about history, we talked about the Bible, we talked about the evidence to, that support the New Testament as a historical manuscript that it far outreaches any other manuscript or work of antiquity that we just take for granted. We take for granted that Socrates or Plato or Thucydides or any of these ancient writers actually wrote what they say and we have very few manuscripts to support that. Yet when it comes to the New Testament, There are tens of thousands of manuscripts. And when you take those tens of thousands of manuscripts, they're all within a half a percent of all saying the same thing. Very few contradictions. And the contradictions that there are are maybe in punctuation or style. But really when it comes to the message of the Bible, the message that if true, and I certainly obviously believe it's true, If this message is true, there is no greater message that you and I need to hear than this. And then we talked, uh, so we talked a lot about faith, that faith is something we exercise all the time, that faith is not just a spiritual thing. Faith is something that uh, we, again, remember last week, you, you ate your dinner tonight in faith. You didn't see who the chef was, but you ate your dinner tonight and you kept eating your dinner tonight and uh, that we all exercise faith all the time. And, and I hope we're really being, beginning to or, or continuing to think about not just what we believe, but why do I believe what I believe? Just, and we, we talked about sincerity, and I think sincerity is wonderful. But you and I can be very sincere about something and be sincerely wrong, can we not? Or I can, I, I, I can sincerely believe something and be wrong. I can sincerely not believe something and be wrong. So sincerity is nice, but it doesn't count for anything really. If you, if you get a test back from your, from your professor and certain things were wrong and you were just absolutely certain with all your heart that they were right, you sincerely believe the answer was right and you tell your professor, professor, I sincerely believe this. Is he going to go, well, well, if you sincerely believe that's the right answer, then of course it must be the right answer. No, sincerity is nice, but it doesn't get you anywhere if you're wrong. 
if I'm wrong. And that's why I'll tell you tonight, don't believe a word I'm telling you. I am not an authority. What we're here to do in the Alpha Course is hopefully get us to think, to look and see what's in the Bible, and to really let the Bible do the talking and see what it says. So whether you are here and you believe this or you don't believe that, we're just glad that you're here. And if nothing else happens at the end of this course or the end of this night, uh, and at least you'll get a better view of what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? And what, what does it not mean to have a relationship with God? And so that's why we're just so glad you're here. Just to come and let us just think together, talk together, enjoy conversing together. And so, so it's good to, to be together. But, and I hope too that you're just not, you're, we're not coming to, uh, you know, assuming things too quickly. and Because it, it, it's going to be dangerous to judge too quickly. And I'm just going to show you a video here in just a second. That judging too quickly or believing something and looking at it at face value and it not being right could bring you to to a wrong conclusion. Look at the cute dog. This <laughs> has a fractured fibula. Given mild Saturday, so he can be able to go home tomorrow. He's going to be so excited. That killed him. All right. Dr. Palmer, Dr. Barbara Palmer. So I, I trust you're here not judging too quickly. So again, we are so glad you're here. And, uh, you know, last week I talked to you, we, we, I, I got two young men up here and we had a little short ruler and we put up that ruler was a representative of physical life and how short physical life is. And we put, took a tape measure and ran it across the room, which dealt with, this was talking about a dash, how quickly life goes by and none of us knows how close to the end we are. But, but according to your hands raised last night, almost every one of us believed that there's something on the other side of our last heartbeat that's going to last forever. The question really is where... Where are we going to spend that time? How do we know that? Can we know? Do we just try to be as good as we possibly can be that hopefully if there is a God, he'll look at how good we've tried to be and that'll be enough. And, uh, and, and that's pretty much where I was. And uh, let me see if I can get us ahead here because I've got to bring us off of that. Uh, I'm looking up in the sky not because God's giving me cue cards. I'm... <laughs> there we are. Back to the big question mark. So, 
So here's, here's the question, because as I mentioned, every one of us has faith. You do understand that. An atheist, with all due respect, if you're an atheist, that's great. Glad you're here. I don't think it's great that you're an atheist. So that's what I'm saying. But it, it's, I'm glad that you're here. But it takes faith to be an atheist. And it takes faith to be a follower of Christ. I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So here's the question. Is my faith position about who God is and how he views me based on my definition of God or God's definition of God? Now think about that. Is my faith position about who God is and how he views me based on my defining terms or his defining terms. And I've really never given any critical thought to that. And growing up, I, you know, I had a, basically had a traditional upbringing growing up. Uh, my theology, again, you know you what theology is. Theology, theologos, theos, logos, God, study of God, the logic about God, the word logos there. We have biology, theology as I just said. My theology, my study of God, was more meology to be quite honest with you. I basically created God in an image for me that was manageable, that suited me. And I would go to church, but basically it was God on my own terms. And I worshipped, um, maybe you did this too, but I, I worshipped the BVM. And I don't know if you're familiar with the BVM. But I, I worshipped the blessed vending machine in the sky. See, and the blessed vending machine in the sky was, was basically, that was my God. My God was basically a, a vending machine. And my good works, the good works that I did were the currency that I would use, my, my definition of the good works that I did, would be the currency that I would use to command the vending machine to give me what I wanted and not what I didn't want. So if I'm looking for a date, you know, good looking date, that's a G10, a girl that's a 10, I would just plunk that in there, you know, you know, an A6 would, you know, if I need a good te test grade, an A, you know, six in the class is good enough. So, so basically, and that, I'm telling you, with all the sincerity I could muster, I believed that. That my good works would be the currency that I would use to get God close. Or if I didn't want him anywhere near, to keep him as far away as possible. And so my vending machine theology was, was really kind of interesting. But the more people I talked to, though they wouldn't have used this goofy analogy, it's pretty much where we all were. And it, it, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1... Verse 26, I think it is. Peter Davidson were here. Um, it's recorded by Moses that God says, let us make man in our own image. Well, in the gospel according to Frank, I wrote, let me make God in my own image so I could manage him. So he would be to me that which would not make me too uncomfortable and would give me what I want when I wanted it and not give me what I didn't want when I didn't want it. So, so basically I had my own meology. And I guess you maybe you have your own urology too. <laughs> you know what I mean. You have your own meology. So 
So in, in, in that form, I found out this, that I'd really put myself above God. That if my works could command my blessed vending machine to give me what I want, I, could, I deserved it, I worked for it, I could command it, if, then I was actually above God and controlled God and he, by my definition of who he was, had to give me what I wanted according to what I did and not give me what I didn't want according to what I did or didn't do. And so basically in my meology, the more I thought about this, God really became my butler, my step and fetch. Because it was incumbent upon him to do what I believed he should do. Because my meology said that my works commend me to God. Now, so we're on page 20. Why did Jesus die? An interesting week to be on this chapter with this being as the world calls Holy Week. Um, But why did Jesus die? Well, according to the Bible, the answer you and I give to this question is the most important to any question in our lives. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, if he did die on the cross that Good Friday, and if he did rise from the dead on that first Easter Sunday then the answer that you and I give to this question is above all questions that we may ever ever be asked, the one that we have to get right. Our lives in the dash, on this earth for as long as we're here, and our lives in the line are determined by the way in which we answer that question. Uh, C.S. Lewis, as you, we talked about him a little bit last week, Uh, He wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Would you agree? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, Christianity is false. Because everything about Christianity is based upon his resurrection from the dead. But if it's false, it's of no importance. It's, It's worse than of no importance. It's dangerous. And if it's true, it is of infinite importance. Would you agree with that? If it is true, if he did rise from the dead, if he has made statements and done things to, for all of us to be able to direct our lives under his love and his care, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It would be like saying, for we humans, to have air is moderately important. Would you consider air moderately important? No. It's essential. And so when we look at this, if this Jesus is raised from the dead, if he died on the cross, it's raised from the dead, it's essential and infinitely important. John Stott, this quote just really got me. The the reason why many people give the wrong answers to the questions about the cross, in other words, why Jesus died, and even ask the wrong questions is that they have, and this is me, carefully considered neither the seriousness of sin nor the majesty of God. They considered neither the seriousness of sin nor the majesty of God. So let's just define terms here for a second. What is sin? We're familiar with that word. Sin basically means to miss the mark. If God has set a mark for us that is to be attained and to be hit and we miss it, It is sin. 
And it's, it's, it's seen as a transgression. It's seen as something that is displeasing to God. But look what he says here. The reason why many people give the wrong answer to the question about the cross and even ask the wrong questions, and this would be me, I wasn't even asking questions. I was making all the statements. That I had nearly, here's Frank Loria, I had neither carefully considered how serious my doing things my way, opposed to God's way, was. And two, I had never seriously considered how majestic God is. That He is totally other than any of us in His holiness and in His perfection. And and I said that, that was me. I'd never given one serious consideration that God had a perspective that could have been different than mine. And so, when I began to see what the Bible said, when I for the first time looked into what the Bible said and saw that my meology did not align with God's, with the theology of the scripture, I was presented with a conundrum. What was I going to do about that? So, Let's look at this here. The problem. There is a problem, obviously. And the problem is this, that God... <laughs> we've considered this a problem. It's a problem for me. God is holy. And I am not. There is a God who is perfect in all of His ways. And I am not. The God of the Bible says that you and I have fallen short of that which allows Him as perfectly perfect and holy in every way to accept us. For to accept us would be to compromise his holiness. And he will not do that. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Let's, and so let's look at some, some scripture to support this position. In, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church, the church in Rome, he wrote this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now all, I would... The word all in the Greek, if you just dig down into the original language, it means all. You may want to write that down. Okay. All have sinned. All have done what? All have missed the mark. All have wanted to be the master of their fate and the captain of their soul. All have put together their own meology, however liturgical it may be or non-liturgical it may be. But all have sinned. All have I don't mind the all thing. The all thing doesn't bother me. The thing that bothers me is when I get to Frank has sinned. Michael has sinned. Stephen has sinned and come short of that which is acceptable. Frank has lied. Frank has stolen. Frank has lusted. Frank has been greedy, envious, jealous, covetous, all those things. So if it's all, I can deal with all. But suddenly when it gets boiled down to you and me, when it gets boiled down to you, you don't like it. It becomes uncomfortable. I can deal with the corporate all. I can't deal with the individual me. And the Bible deals with the individual me. I have sinned and come short of that which is fallen short of that which is acceptable to God. Then Paul writes in another place in Romans, a little bit earlier, he says, there is none righteous Not even one. Not even one. 
There is none righteous. Okay, what does righteous mean? It means to be right. It's another word for, we can use that word for holy as well, though it's not exactly the same word. None is holy, not even one. And so as I'm reading these things, this is not good news, is it? So far, I promise we're going to, don't leave. We will turn the corner eventually. But so we see this, there's none righteous, not even one. Not one of us has a a, a record uh, of acceptance that could validate us before God. None of us has a validating performance record. Now many believe that I did that, so if, so if somebody would ask me the question, how do, you, how do you think you're going to heaven? Well, I've heard this answer so many times. Um, well, you keep the Ten Commandments. I'm sure you've heard that. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. How many of you in this room have never broken one of the Ten Commandments? I get the same answer every time. This is amazing. <laughs> How many of you in this room even know the Ten Commandments? Go ahead. Just okay. have a few hands here. That, you're even worse then because you know what they are. You know, there, there was a survey taken of about a thousand people. 14% of the thousand, I think it was like a thousand and fifty. I don't remember the exact number. 14% of the thousand fifty people knew the Ten Commandments, which I think is pretty good. About 140 people knew the Ten Commandments. But 80% of the people knew Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese. People were more aware of what it took to get through the golden arches than the pearly gates. I mean, this is bad stuff. That was a bad, that was bad, that was really bad. But really, just if you ask, how good... So if I'm sitting here asking myself this question, and maybe you could ask yourself this question, how good do I think I am? If I'm really thinking about it. How good are you? Now typically when we think of that question, we typically think of that question in comparison to so-and-so. I'm a saint. Right? But we're never comparing ourselves really in, a, in an honest way. And, and I'll just say this. We're actually... You're worse than you think you are. Right? I mean, just imagine for a minute... If, if we could just take um, a thought monitor and just put it over your head, all right? You just put this thought monitor over your head, it plugs into this little USB port in the, in the back of your neck, and suddenly what comes up are your thoughts. Not, not what you say, but what you think. <laughs> Did you hear that? Somebody said, I'm going to get arrested, is what I heard in the back. <laughs> You know, so the boss wants to know why I got into the office at 9.30 on Monday as opposed to 8 o'clock when I'm there. And I say, well, you know, traffic was horrible. I got a flat tire and on my thought monitor, there's me in bed just pushing the snooze button just one more time. You know, and then, of course, this happens to us guys. It's never happened to me, thankfully. But imagine the wife just buys a new dress. Wife buys a new dress, beautiful new dress. She wants to put it on for you, gentlemen. And she puts the dress on and she comes to model it. And then she turns around and she says, Sweetheart, do you think this dress makes my rear end look big? And on the thought monitor, 
there's this picture of this sausage factory and sausage just being crammed into the lining. So we're... So my thoughts get me as well as the things I say in anger or deception as well. So I, and I had no idea that the Bible taught these things. See? And so the Bible talks about several things we can see in your, in your manual. The pollution of sin, the penalty of sin, and the partition of sin. Let me just share with you a couple of more scriptures real quickly here. Here's Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. This is what Jesus had to say. He says, what comes out of a man, what comes out of us, is what makes him unclean. What comes out, it makes him unclean or unrighteous, impure, unacceptable to God. Because God is totally holy and pure. For from within, out of men's hearts, women's hearts, come Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these things come from inside and make a man, make a human unclean. And so according to what Jesus says, every one of us is unclean. There's not one of us that is right. We have all done our own thing. We have all bought into our own meology, hoping, thinking, keeping our fingers crossed, going to church even, that that's good enough. And if the Bible is true, it's telling us that there's a conflict between what I and my meology think and what the Bible says. penalty of sin for the wages of sin is death now wages are something you earn right now what is death in the bible in the bible death is not annihilation you cease to be but death is separation so when when Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 now, when Adam and Eve sin, when Eve takes the fruit, eats, Adam follows right after her. God had told Adam, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And they partook of that fruit. They didn't drop dead physically on the spot, but they began to die physically, soulishly. And they immediately died in terms of their relationship to God because they rebelled and they did their own thing. And they basically said that we have a better understanding, God, than you do. And so the penalty of sin separates us from God. And then the partition of sin. Here's Isaiah writing some 700 years before Jesus comes to earth. He writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, okay, your sins, you're doing it your own way, you're missing the mark, have made a separation, okay, a death between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So there is an internal pollution, there is a penalty And there is a partition that separates us. 
So we see that there's a, there's a chasm of separation between us and God that none of our works can build a bridge to repair that, that chasm that is there. We are separated from God by, by our own doing. And, and really, all of religions that are based on laws and rules have a, a validating performance record whereby we try to deal with this chasm. And I just, if any of you want to take a, a comparative religion class, I will save you some money right now. So world religions, every religion of the world, again, check this out yourself. We just, this is an introduction. But every religion of the world teaches this. So the world religions are, as I said, they're, they're performance-based religions. If God's going to accept you, you have to be so good. Right? So basically, so these are the religions of the world. I'm not saying Christianity is not, not a religion, but it's a relationship-based religion. We'll get into that in just a minute. So here's some of the religions of the world. So they basically teach this, that man is down here and God is up here and man is, you know, certainly some of us are better than others. But it's just like the analogy of if, if you took, just say, four people and you put them in San, in San Diego, at San Diego Harbor, and they're swimming to Honolulu, how many are going to make it? No. Some will make it farther than others. Some may be better swimmers than others. But none is going to make it to Honolulu. And that's basically the picture of religion. And every religion teaches that. So whether it's Islam, Hinduism, Mormonism, Buddhism, or the ever-increasing faith of whatever, um, that, really, uh, it basically teaches us every world religion. It has different, you may have the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment, or the Buddhists, or the Five Pillars of Faith of Islam, any numbers of things. But it's basically teaching the same thing. It's incumbent upon you to be good enough to hope you've been good enough. Doesn't that sound exciting? Well, what does this religion of Christianity teach? It teaches that because God knew that you and I could never attain his perfection. He came. He sent Jesus Christ to come and live the perfect life we could not live. And pay the penalty for us that we did not have the ability, the currency to pay for. So that we could have a relationship with him. Not based on our validating performance record. But putting our whole trust in his validating performance record. Do you, do you see the difference? Do you see that it's a 180 thing? And so that's basically what we, what we learn quickly from the religions of the world. I, I will tell you this, that, that Christianity is the worst news. You will get the worst news from Christianity that you can possibly get. Every other religion will tell you there is some hope for you, in you. Christianity says there's absolutely no hope in you, Frank Loria, whatsoever. And there's no better news 
Because God says, I come to do for you what you in a million lifetimes or reincarnations could not do for yourself. And if that is the truth, and I would argue humbly that it is, there is never any better news than you and I would receive than, than that. So we talk about, we talk about the, the problem. There is a solution. Right? Let's look at a couple of those scriptures as we're chugging down this road. Um, Peter, in his first epistle um, to the church, is when and Peter is writing this to those who have become followers of, of Jesus Christ. He writes this, And he himself bore our sins in his body. Do, do you get that? You heard that? He himself bore, carried our sins, our selfishness, our greed, our envy, all those things he carried in him, on himself on the cross. He put them all upon the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed, you were saved. Okay, so, so just for a moment, just see yourself as being plugged into death. Before Christ, before I received Christ, before I was a, a rank meologist, right, I was plugged into death, right? The wages of sin is death. So I'm plugged into death. Well, what, what Peter's telling us is if Jesus bore our sins so that we might die to sin, that is, in other words, be unplugged from death and receive the life of Christ and be plugged into life. See, if, if, until I had surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, till I trusted what he did for me, not what I hoped I could do for me, I was totally consumed in separation. Didn't mean I couldn't know things about God. Didn't mean I couldn't read things about God. Didn't mean I couldn't experience things about God. But in terms of my relationship with him, according to what the Bible says, I was dead, separated. I had the, if you will, that plug, that energy of sin constantly with me. And what the Lord says through the Apostle Peter is that when I receive, when I trust Christ, I am unplugged from sin in that death. And I am plugged into the very righteous holy life of God. And then Peter writes again in the third chapter, he says, for Christ died for sins. How many times does it say here? Once. He died once. He's only going to die once. He's not getting back on the cross because he forgot some sins back in Galilee. He died once for sins. The righteous, that would be him. For the unrighteous, that would be Wow, that was humble. Yes, that, that would be me. To do what? Look at what it says here. Does it say to forgive your sins? Yes. But what else does it say? To bring you to God. In other words, what, what I love about this verse from Peter is, is, is that Peter is not saying, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so you could be forgiven. In other words, God said, you're forgiven, but you really bother me. So, just go be forgiven somewhere else. He died for my sins once for all time. Do you hear that? 
All the sins I ever committed, he died for once for all time so that I could become righteous, so that he could usher me to his Father. Not just forgiveness, but acceptance. Not just I forgive you, but I don't like you. It's I forgive you because I love you and I accept you. You are mine forever. Now, if that's the truth, you would have to agree, even if you don't agree with that being the truth, that that is good news. It's really good news. And then Isaiah, again, I'll I'll bring to you a scripture from Isaiah, which I know there's a lot of words up there. But here's 700 years before Jesus... Um, before crucifixion was even a form of punishment, the prophet, the Jewish prophet Isaiah wrote this, and we're just excerpting a couple of verses from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Now see this. Imagine reading this for the first time, and maybe some of you in here are reading it for the first time. And I would ask you, if you didn't know, who do you think this is talking about? And you didn't know it was written 700 years before Jesus came. Surely, here's Isaiah writing, prophetically, looking ahead to the life of Jesus and his cross. Surely he took up our infirmities, our sicknesses, our death. He took them up himself and carried our sorrows. Does that sound like Calvary? Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, wanted nothing to do with him. But he was, see that word? Pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. Another word, fancy word for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought Do you read that? Us, peace, was upon him. And by his wounds, you, Frank Loria, are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Meologists that I was and that we can be. Each of us have turned to his own way, his own way, not God's way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, wouldn't you think that you were just reading? He himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin. It's... We see Isaiah writing hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the planet. That one would come, he would be crushed, and he would pay the penalty. He would remove the pollution. And he would do away with the partition that sin had created for us. And so the total emphasis in the scripture is on Jesus' validating performance record. That commends me to God. Not my validating performance record that would commend me to God. 
Another scripture, the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the region of an area called Galatia. And, and this is what Paul wrote. I, I, I catch this here. Because when I read this scripture, it totally blew away my meology, never to be repaired again. I do not treat, Paul writes, the grace of God as meaningless. Okay, let's talk about grace. All I knew about grace is what you had to say at my Italian dinner table before supper. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Just to put it in a couple of words. It's getting something you don't deserve. Right? God, for those who will believe, will accrue Jesus' validating performance record to us and put aside our record of attempted validation which keeps us in death. I don't treat the grace of God as meaning nothing. Now catch this. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. See, he could have just come and been a life coach. Could have just come and been a good teacher. Could just come and get a pep, pep talk to the team, pat us on the butt, say, go out there and give it your, you know, give it a good old college try. If being good enough was good enough, if my efforts could be good enough, if my keeping the law, you know those Ten Commandments things that we don't know and don't keep, if that was good enough, do you understand that? There was no reason for Jesus to come and die. He didn't have to if there was something in you or me that would commend us to God. But God loved us according to the scripture where we were to take us out of where we were to who he is by his own record and by his own doing. That is grace. That is grace getting something we do not deserve. So I just wrote this. Jesus did not come to simply be an example impossible to emulate. He came to be our Savior. Religion gives us rules and laws to try to improve our meology, to make us better. Just improve us. I just need a better version of me. Or to enhance our validating performance record. But validating performance record religion does not give us a Savior to receive because in religion... We don't need to be saved. We just need to be improved. See, when, when I started off this evening, I said that is my faith position about who God is and how He views me based on my definition of God or how He views me based on His definition. And I was faced with the fact that why Jesus died had everything to do with the fact that I had sinned and come short of his glory. Mm. And so Jesus accomplished what we could not accomplish for ourselves because God, unlike us, is capable of doing that because he's perfect in all of his ways. And let's just share with you just a couple of things. Let's just talk about just the attributes of God for a moment. See, we would say God is love. 
None of us have a problem with that. We like the fact that God is love. That, that's comforting to know that God is love. God is holy. And God has never, ever not been totally, completely holy. What the scripture tells us is true. He's always been holy. He's merciful. He extends mercy. He is wise. He is all wise. Uh, he is knowledge. He is all knowing. He is patient. I'm grateful that he is patient. And this last one here, he is justice. Now, up until about then, I'm doing fine. But I haven't seen any bumper stickers lately that says, God is justice, and I'm so happy. See? And so, if God is going to be anything, he's got to be everything at the same time. He cannot compromise one for the sake of the other. So, let's, let's say, for example, what, what is Mervyn? Don't worry, Mervyn. I'm not going to do anything strange. <laughs> Yet. Just, just give me a So let's say Mervyn and I are very good friends. I'm a, I'm a court judge. And Mervyn is in my court because he went 50 miles an hour in a school zone. Now, I know Mervyn very well. We're good friends. But this is a Louisiana court, so don't get nervous. This doesn't mean anything. Uh, the, the fine for going 50 miles an hour in a school zone in New Orleans is $10,000. I mean, if somebody's driving that fast and your kid's going to that school, how do you feel about that? Pretty good. So, Mervyn, I call him up and I said, Mervyn, what do you plead? He said, well, Your Honor, I was, I, was, I was late for work. It was my first day at a new job. I wish you'd had a thought monitor at that moment. Um, and I, you know, I, just don't, I just don't know. You know, you, you see my record, Your Honor. I've, I've never been caught. I mean, I've never done this before. Uh, and so I call Mervyn up to the bench. I said, Mervyn, I cannot believe you were doing this. And if I ever catch you in my court again... I'm going to throw the book at you. It's going to be all done. But get out of my court. Now, how's Mervyn feeling about that? He's feeling pretty good, right? Uh, mercy, mercy has been extended to Mervyn. I kind of like that. That works kind of mercy and Mervyn. Okay. So mercy's been extended to Mervyn. He's experienced everything. But, but how about this? Where'd justice go? Justice was compromised so that I could extend love to Mervyn and mercy to Mervyn well let's go back to the courtroom and I just tell Mervyn too bad Mervyn's got no way to pay a $10,000 bill no way to pay a $10,000 fine he's going away for a long time and I say sorry Mervyn the law's the law bailiff take him justice has been served has it not? But how much mercy did Mervyn receive? Not a bit. So mercy is compromised. So how does God satisfy his justice and his mercy without compromising? Let's go back into the courtroom. So Mervyn's there. The bill is $10,000. Mervyn is guilty. But because I love Mervyn so much, I come from behind the judge's bench, I remove my robes, 
I pull my checkbook out of my back pocket and I write a check for $10,000 for the fine that is owed by Mervyn for transgressing my law. How much did it cost Mervyn? Zero. Zero. How much did it cost me? Has the fine been satisfied according to the law? Yes, it has. Has mercy been extended? Has justice been satisfied? See, here is what God has done. And we can see this even in the scripture. Let's go back to Romans for a moment here. For all have sinned, you saw this earlier, and fall short of the glory of God. Look what it says. And are, this is the rest of the scripture I didn't tell you earlier, and are justified as a, what is that word, that little four-letter word? Gift by His grace through the redemption. You know what redemption is, right? You buy something back. Some of us are old enough to know about green stamps, like top value stamps and all that. I'm getting some shaking of the head here. Uh, justifies by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, we're going to talk a lot about next week what that means to be in Christ Jesus. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies without compromising who he is. Those who have faith in Jesus. And so we see the the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the patience of God, and the justice of God, all satisfied in Jesus Christ. Let me do this real quick. Um, One more thing. I'm on. Great, great. Michael? Yes. Thank you. I'm going to thank you in advance. Okay. Here, I'm going to give this, Michael. Okay, okay. Could you see if it works, please, just ring? Hello? Good, okay. Yeah, I just wanted to see if you'd do that. Okay, Michael, this is a gift that I want to give you, right? This gift costs a fortune. It is priceless. And you need this gift to save your life. And I have purchased this for you. And I love you and I want you to have this gift. How much is it going to cost you? Use the microphone. Um, all the money I have. Yeah. I know Lauren's behind you. So Lauren, if you have any help for him, just go ahead. Okay, let me just... Michael, this is a gift. Okay. Uh, okay. I know. Free. I'd be forever uh, indebted to okay. you. Okay, so it's a gift. Now I want to give it to you. How, how much do you have to work for it? Nothing. Why? Because it's free. It's, it's a gift. gift. Is there anything you do to earn it? No. Because it's a gift. gift. Do you believe this will save you? Yes. Save you? Okay, good. Yes, it's really <laughs> um, so when does it save you? When I get it. Right, when you get it. They must want it as well. Uh, so how much good is it doing you in, in when it's in my hand? None. None. When does it do you good? When I get it. Would you like to have it? Yes. <laughs> good. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Jim. See, 
God extends the gift. He paid for the gift. The question is, what will I do with the gift? Do I see that I have a need for that gift? Um, See, when we respond to the gift as Michael did, um, the remedy is given to us. When we respond to God's gift of Jesus Christ, the remedy, the pollution of sin is removed. The power of sin over us that holds us in death is broken. And the penalty of sin is paid for and the partition is gone. Remember earlier we said, so that, God, so that Jesus could bring us to God. It's Jesus who brings us to God. It's he who fords that gap. And so when we, we read in, in John's gospel this, uh, let me just get past that because I, I've already been there. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever receives the gift, who believes by faith that that will save him, heal him, restore him to God, should not perish, should not be separated, should not still be in death, but will have eternal life. Again, there's that world thing. There's that corporate generic world thing. God so loved the world. But what if just for a moment you inserted your name in the place of the world? See, for God so loved Fred that he gave his only son. That God so loved Josh that he gave his only son. For God so loved Eleonora that he gave his son that if Fred, Josh, Tammy, Eleonora would receive the gift. That's what it means to believe. See, Michael's not taking this unless he believes it's going to heal him, save him by faith. Should not perish, should not forever in the line on the other side of that last heartbeat, should not should not perish, be separated from God forever, but shall have on the other side of the line forever eternal life. Life with God forever. So, who's eternal? Well, look, if the Bible's true, God is eternal. So when He gives us eternal life, He's imparting to us the life of His Son so that forever we will be with Him. But the... The great news too is that eternal life begins now because God imparts his life to all those who receive him now in the dash. And we experience him until death and we part from our flesh. And so what do we do? I mean, this is the gift of Easter. This is what Easter is. Is For God so loved the world that he gave us his son back from death. That if we would receive him, we would not perish. We would have eternal life. And if you're anything like me, um, I would be sitting where you are tonight wondering, have I been thinking 
living in out from my own efforts to commend myself to God. And then what do I do? Well, I would just encourage you just to do what many of us have done. And that's just have a conversation with God. Tell Him you need Him. Tell Him you recognize you have been a first-class meologist like I was. But you want to stop that. You want to change the rules tonight. You want to change the order of your life. And so I, I would just encourage you this. There's a, there's just a, you know, prayer is conversation with God. And I would just encourage you. This, this is kind of a prayer. But it may be something that's in your heart right now as you're thinking about this. And it would say something like this. And you can, you, you can, by the way, you can pray with your eyes open. This amazing thing that we've discovered recently. Um, and it would be saying something from your heart. There's nothing magical about these words. These are not two all beef patty words. These are, these are words that if they come out from your heart, if you mean them, if God is working on you, this is a conversation with God. And just say, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know I've missed the mark. And I know I cannot save myself. I know I can't afford that gap. I know I'm separated from you. But by faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I am ready to trust you. To trust you now as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Amen. Now, I want to encourage you that if you just pray that prayer, if you just communicated with God in that way, that's just the beginning it's just the beginning of a new life and a new relationship with Him. It's really why I want to encourage you next week to be back here next week. We're going to really just talk more about this and go into some more issues of certainty and more scriptures. And I cannot encourage you enough to be back here. We have some gifts for you tonight though as well. How good is good enough? Uh, is since, since nobody's perfect, anybody got that book at their table? Okay, so just lift it up just for a second here. Since nobody's perfect, how good is good enough? That's the question this meologist was asking. How good do I have to be? Uh, we have a great gift from Andy Stanley who wrote that book. A little booklet there, about 80 pages. And then we also have some, a book written by uh, Lee Strobel, uh, who was the chief legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, who wrote a book called The Case for Easter. So he tackled the evidences for Easter from a journalist writing for the Chicago Tribune. So... So next week, session four, it is, it really is my favorite of all the weeks. And then I just want to encourage you as well. What, what are you doing Easter Sunday morning? I, could I encourage you? Get up and go to a place where you will have the opportunity to experience God and have God minister and care for you wherever that Maybe, and then lastly, uh, I've I've been told that Thursday night, maybe in this room, depending upon how many people are coming, they're going to be showing 
uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. So if you'd like to come and be a part of that, that's free. And I think, Rodney, you're providing all the popcorn. Is that what I heard? So, so good. Well, anyway, I really thank you all for being here. I really hope to see you next week. Feel free to continue to bring friends if you'd like or just bring friends if you'd like. Let's take a quick break and get back to our tables as soon as possible. Thank you for being here.